The world seems so unstable, so insecure. Everything is changing way too fast. But there are some things that are steadfast, things that never change. God and His Word. Join us as Pastor Randy Rehm shares truths from God's unchanging Word. John chapter 10. Please stand when you're there. It is our tradition to stand for the reading of God's Word. We will read verses 11 through 21. 11 through, there was just too much meat in John 10 to take the whole chapter, uh, so we'll, we're breaking it down in these pieces. Starting in verse 11, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. He who is the hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming, and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold, and I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. No one has taken away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up. This commandment I received from my Father. And a division occurred among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, He has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Others were saying, these are not the sayings of a one demon-possessed, and a demon cannot open the eyes of the blind. Can he? You may be seated. I'm going to preempt or pre-warn. Some of you might have your doctrine offended today. That is just fine. We feel glad to come to me and we will discuss the distinctions or differences in which I might be pointing out today. All I ask you to do is come with Scripture, not opinion. So let's begin. I am the good shepherd. Again, why, do you, why, do you want to insi- why does he want to include the word good? Again, we have talked about this last week. You have to look at Ezekiel chapter 34. Remember these uh, Pharisees that are hearing this. Um, are very familiar with the Old Testament. And there in Ezekiel 4, there's a distinction made between the good shepherd and bad shepherds. The shepherd leads, as we saw last time we referenced to the sheepfold, the pen. He leads them out of the sheep pen. We know in this case, that sheep pen is Israel. That's the context. Okay? Um, we'd already, he already showed that he was the shepherd, and they didn't quite get it. They didn't understand. Um, so he goes and says, well, wait a minute. Let me, let me go a little deeper in this metaphor. I'm also the gate. Okay? And no one comes in and out except by him, by Jesus, the gate. We talked a little bit about the gatekeeper last time um, because he says there's a gatekeeper. He's the gate. He's the shepherd, but there's a gatekeeper. Um, Guys that aren't the shepherd 
Try to climb over the wall. They avoid two things, the gate and the gatekeeper. We talked about that gatekeeper being the word of God, the thing that identifies the true shepherd. If it's not, if it's not the true shepherd, he's not let in. Okay? And he says that the sheep hear his voice. So we get to this now. I'm the good shepherd and I lay down my life for my sheep. He says the same thing. He repeats it in verse 15. Now, if you know anything about Jewish literature, Hebrew literature, repetition's there for a reason. And it is most of the time in all languages, um, particularly in, in written stuff, all right? But that repetition's to create emphasis. So we'll talk about that in a minute. But he contrasts the good shepherd who lays down his life for sheep to the hired hand, the employee. He's not the owner of the sheep. When he sees a wolf coming, he leaves. Okay, so this we have the metaphor of the robbers in the first part, the sheepfold, the door, the shepherd. Now he throws in this metaphor of the hired hand. I mean, there are really hired hands that watch sheep, but he uses that as a metaphor for the kingdom. Um, the hired hand is there for a paycheck. If I could say it like that, that's pretty straightforward. In our culture, we put it that way. He's not there because of the sheep. If he was hired to watch cows, he'd watch cows. If he was hired to watch goats, he'd watch goats. Okay? It's a job, not a calling. And if you don't know the difference between a calling and a purpose, you can have that conversation with me here. Many of you here have heard me teach on that before. But when it says running, so if this is metaphoric, and the, and the sheep are his Sheep are his children, the bows who believe in particular at this point of Israel. Wolves come to scatter the sheep. Notice when the wolf comes, they don't stop being sheep. The wolf scatters the sheep. But running from that wolf is not confronting the wolf. Here's the wolf. I can confront the wolf with whatever weapon I have. Or I can run from the wolf. The wolf is someone, he doesn't feed the sheep, he feeds on the sheep, or she, whichever the wolf may be, I don't want to be sexist here, it could be a male or female sheep, male or female, hired hand, okay? But the result is the sheep are scattered. That's the result of this. Now, we all recognize, I think, this metaphor well enough, all right? But I think one of the things that we must realize here is the wolf, the, the hired hand, does not confront the wolf the wolf comes he avoids the wolf why because confronting the wolf causes division if i could say it like that they think this that when the wolf comes to scatter and devour the sheep now let me a question this is a metaphor right for the kingdom of god so therefore doctrine teaching theology god to study of and what God does, has to come into play here. The shepherd is only going to teach of the true God. He is the true God in this case. All right. The wolf's going to come. The thief and the robber is going to come, not by the gate. The wolf doesn't go to the gate and go, excuse me, gatekeeper, could you let me in? No, he dresses like a sheep. We can find that later, later epistles, that the wolf comes in sheep's clothing. Thus the picture I was going to have for you of Wiley Coyote and Ralph the Sheepdog, because at one time, you know, he dresses up like the Sheepdog Ralph. I don't, 
It's amazing. Sometimes I can't remember a name, but I can remember a cartoon from 30, 40 years ago, however long ago, well, more than that now, 50 years ago. Okay. <laughs> um, and the name of the dog. I can remember that, but not your name. That's amazing. Anyway, and another time he dresses up like a sheep. But we all know that analogy that also is there in Scripture. We have to confront the wolf when he comes, whether he's disguised as a sheep, a sheepdog, or a shepherd. And I think there are too many shepherds, using that Ezekiel analogy, that will not confront the wolf. Because they want their pens full, whether they're sheep or goats. You got to confront the, the hired hand, flees, runs from that confrontation with the wolf. By that, the sheep are scattered. Now, now you guys know I'm using an analogy here of clergy, pastors, who don't want to confront the false doctrine that comes in to the body of Christ, into the sheepfold, if I can do it that way. In this particular case, it's Israel, but you'll see here in a minute, he includes you and I as well. They think that causes division. They think bringing up doctrinal, theological issues divides. I hate to tell you, it's the wolf that scatters. Not the gate, not the gatekeeper, and not the shepherd. If you keep the subject matter, if, if you stay with the gatekeeper, the word of God, you can't go wrong. Okay? It is the Holy Spirit through the word that draws men and women to the kingdom. Not me placating to our social beliefs, morals. Now, I got books in my office that will tell you seven ways to grow a church. Fifteen ways, and I get emails all the time. And one of those ways is programs. They, it, I could show you statistically, and they have these bar graphs. You know what? If you get the people in and you plug them into a program right away, they stay. But I'm not in the program business. I'm in a sheep business, if I could say it like that. Do you know what I'm saying? My job is simply to be a gatekeeper. That is, a word guy, and God's the one who calls the sheep by name. He's the one that leads them in and out, not me. Not a program. I, excuse me, they're not, in the church we call them ministries. Yeah, I'll get in trouble for that one. But Jesus goes on to say, he's the good shepherd, lays down his life for the sheep. But then he says, this is personal. Watch what he says. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. It's personal, and I lay down my life for the sheep. Now, to know, we, we tend to think cognitive process to know something. I'm going to be honest, God knows everything. So that ain't what he means here. And those he foreknew, he also predestined. Those he, what does new mean? Many people think somehow that means God looked forward in time, learned something, and saw who would pick him, and then he predestines them. Problem is, God knows everybody. He foreknew every person. He knew the worst person ever, the most pious person ever. He knows all of them. So what does he mean, those I 
foreknew. Same as he does here when he says, I know the Father. Knowing meaning intimate, closeness, familiarity, distinctive, personal, intimate knowledge. Yeah, yeah. And Joseph did not know his wife until, no, intimate, personal. We don't tend to use no in that way. But he says, I'm intimate, personal with my sheep, like I am with the Father. That's pretty personal, folks. I know my sheep. They know me. And I laid down my life for the sheep. Then he, I'll, I'll take that apart a little bit later. But he includes, this is where he includes the Gentiles now. And I have sheep not of this fold. The fold he's talking about being Israel. Not of the Israel fold, but I must bring them in also. We see that. That's, you get an Acts and through Pauline epistles and Paul the apostle to the Gentiles. Those sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them. And they will listen. That, that's an affirmative statement. It's in the emphatic. They will listen. Why? Because the sheep hear his voice. They will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock, one shepherd. Ephesians does talk about this, by the way. That great mystery of the Jew and Gentile being united in one in Christ. Then he talks about this, the sheep lay down, or the shepherd lays down for his life for his sheep. He speaks this way. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life so that I may take it up again. Please, if you do inductive Bible study, do not leave out so that. See, too many people want to say, because I lay down for my life. No. So that. There was a purpose in that. Not just laying down the life. The purpose of laying down the life was to pick it up again. No one has taken away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. And I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to pick it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. First of all, God loved Jesus from the foundation of the world, John 17 and 24. This is not saying that God loves the Son because of this thing He did. What Jesus is saying is, here's the evidence that I have this knowing, the special relationship with the Father. The evidence of that is, I lay it down, present tense, so that I may take it up again, future tense. Then Jesus repeats it. No one takes it and takes my life away, is what he's referring to. Take it, my life, from me. Error is tense, and I'm not going to break that down all for you, but he's using various tenses here to show the timelessness of it. Jesus voluntarily gives his life for his sheep. I've heard this in an accusation against Christianity, particularly from the Islamic world. What kind of wicked and cruel Godfather would kill his own son? He didn't. His son voluntarily gave his life. The father did not kill the son. He voluntarily went and died. The Jews nor the Romans killed. Matter of fact, Jesus gets into this conversation with Pilate. Don't you know I have the, I have the authority to set you free? And Jesus goes, oh, you don't got any authority unless my daddy gave it to you anyway. So what are you talking about? 
Death is the consequence of sin. Therefore, Jesus could not die or be killed. He had to lay down his life because he had no sin. Thus, in Acts 2, 24, it says it was impossible, impossible, impossible for death to hold him because death's authority is founded on sin. Christ had no sin. Death could not keep him. Death could not take him. He had to lay it down. He had to lay down that life. And he says again, I have the authority to lay it down, and I have the authority to take it up again. You, you want a proof that I know the Father and the Father knows me? I, I claim this special thing that they want to stone him for. They like they've done before. They'll do it here later. Okay, this special Utah. Yeah, watch. Now, what's interesting here is Jesus is pretty straight. This isn't a metaphor. He says, I will lay down my life, and I'll take it up again. Nobody hears that. That's amazing to me. They hear all kinds. They don't recognize he is saying, I'm going to die. I think it's pretty clear. And he says, this commandment I received from the Father. Really? When? This is called the eternal covenant of redemption. Slain since the foundation of the world type of statement. Okay, from Ephesians 1, 4 through 9, 3 through 9 through 11, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13. 2 Timothy 1.9, 1 Peter 1, 1 through 3, and so on. Before the earth was ever created, before there was a universe, the Father and Son sat down and made a plan. And Jesus volunteered then. The Father sent the Son. The Son never sent the Father. We, we don't say the Father died on the cross, do we? That's patriopatronism, if you want to know. We, we don't do that. There were, are distinct functions, roles in the Trinity that manifest in redemption. That's called the eternal covenant. That's when this commandment, if you could say, is given. It is Jesus' voluntary obedience that leads to Philippians chapter 2, 6-11. through 11. His voluntary obedience, not forced obedience, voluntary obedience, Philippians 2, 6-11. through 11. It's one of my life verses. Verse 5 tells us it's Jesus Christ who is being talked about here. So Jesus Christ, who being very nature, God did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. For this reason, God highly exalted him, name and both bestowed upon him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, those in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It is that voluntary obedience to be our substitutionary atonement. And God says, because of your voluntary obedience, everything will bow to you, to my glory. This 
causes division. Really? Start talking substitutionary atonement. Jesus' voluntary substitutionary atonement. That is, he took the wrath of God in our place. What are you saved from? God. That's what you're saved from. The wrath of God, Romans 5. Well, four, 3, 4, 5. Jesus took the very wrath of God on our behalf. That'll stir up a crowd, I'll tell you, even on a Sunday morning in churches across America. A division occurred again, again it says again, you notice it says, because this, it already told us this in John in a couple places, uh, when Jesus speaks, it, it, it stirs up division. By the nature of the gospel, it stirs, creates division. If you're looking to share the gospel without division, you've got to make up a new one. Again, divert, or excuse me, a division occurred again among these because of his words. They were doing all fine. They do okay until Jesus speaks. I would suggest to you that will well, the word of Christ will still cause division. I'll do it today. Watch. Many of them were saying he has a demon and is insane. Now, you've got to understand, in those days, they, they equated insanity, mental disorder, with demon possession. Now, we all know today that there are mental disorders that are caused by physiological issues, all right? But there is an association in those days. If you had a mental issue, you obviously have a demon. Not necessarily. It could be, but we all know today that's not the case. But in their culture, they associated that. So it's not necessarily they're saying two separate things. They're they sort of saying the same thing in their culture. Why do you listen to him? Let me, let me put it in the way the first guy said it. Did he really say? Did he re really say that he's going to lay down his life and take it up again? Did he really say he knows the father like this? Did he really say he knows his sheep like this? Why do you listen to the crazy guy? Others were saying, mm, these aren't the saying of a demon-possessed a demon can't open the eyes of the blind, can he? Jesus' words and actions are not those of an insane person. Now, I've, you've probably heard this argument from Josh McDowell or somebody else if you've been around in Christianity for a while, and in particularly in apologetics, that is defending the Christian faith against criticisms and arguments of other worldviews that you only have two options. Jesus was either who he said he was or he was insane. Come on, he claimed to be God. He claimed to come down from heaven. He claimed to forgive sins, right? So his claim, he's either nutsoid or he's right. These guys taking this path, it's nuts. That's what it's got to be because he can't be right to their view. Others going, wait, wait a minute, before I, before I make that assumption... I look at the whole guy here, and I don't, I don't see that. But it does connect this uh, parochopy, the section, with the previous section when Jesus healed the man that was born blind. One of the significant parts of that was 
Nobody has ever been healed, it says in the text. And there's nowhere in the Old Testament where anybody ever who was born blind could see. There might, there might have been times when somebody had, had an ailment that caused their eyesight to fail, but, but then they healed, they, they grow over it, the disease goes away, whatever. But when you can't see from the get-go, yeah, I don't know about that one. Only God has that power to create. Now I want to, we broke the text down a little bit there, but now I, I got to go to the theology. Yeah, I said theology, I use that word. And theology includes all kinds of things uh, in the area of maybe it might be salvation. That's called soteriology. Eschatology is the end time stuff. Okay, Christology is who Christ is. Theology proper is when we talk about God himself. So theology encompasses a lot of that. But I think here we have to address the area of soteriology. To do that, allow me to define a term for you you've heard many times in the church world that is atonement. In the Old Testament, that word's used of that cover of the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, with the, you've seen it, we've all seen Readers of the Lost Ark, right? With the cherubims, with their wings going like this, that top plate that set over the Ark, underneath it was the law. Okay, over it was suspended that pillar of cloud by day and fire by night representing the presence of God. This was called the mercy seat or the atonement cover. And that's where they would, on the, on the day of atonement, they would sacrifice that lamb, sprinkle that blood on the mercy seat. So as metaphorically, allegorically, as God in the presence here is the fire and the smoke, looked down at the law, he looked through the blood of the lamb. Now, I don't think I have to explain the symbolism of the typology to you for that okay but when we get to the new testament and looking particular at the greek which i won't burden you too much with but there's two concepts put there that's expiation and propitiation you go huh i know they're they're bible words okay but expiation is to appease to placate to conciliate to satisfy in particular to placate to satisfy right the wrath of god's justice Propitiation is to make favorable, to be well, make, well disposed on the behalf of another. So atonement is this. On the behalf of another, the anger and wrath of God is appeased, placated by the sacrifice of the Lamb. The wrath of God is appeased by the sacrifice of the Lamb. The atonement has made, was made to satisfy the justice of God through the substitutionary atonement, substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to listen again now. I am the good shepherd. I lay down my life for the sheep. He says it again in verse 14, 15, when he's talking about his intimate relationship with the Father and he knows the sheep, I lay down my life for the sheep. According to Jesus' words, for who did he atone for? The sheep. 
If you're not offended yet, you weren't listening. When, he, Jesus, when the angel appears to Mary and tells her about this child that she's going to have, this virgin's going to have, he will save his people from their sins. Who will he save? His people. Later on in the chapter, Jesus says this to his audience in verse 25, 26. We'll touch on it some less next week, but we'll take another path as we go. There's so much there. Jesus said to them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness of me. Now listen. But you do not believe because you are not my flock. Here's how most Americans read that. You are not my flock because you do not believe. That's the way most Americans read that. They, they read it right, but the brain goes, you're not his flock because you don't believe. That ain't what Jesus says. Since you don't believe because you're not one of my sheep. That's tough. When, he, when he's asked about, and Matthew and Mark ask about, why do you speak in parables? Jesus says, because if I didn't, they'd get it and they might believe, and I don't want them to. Unless you are a universalist, that is, everybody goes to heaven, like our Mormon friends, my Mormon neighbors believe. Everybody gets there, just your, your different levels, right? Unless that, you agree that the atonement is partial or limited in some sense. The question is, what limits it? Now, it's clear from Scripture, not everybody's saved, right? I mean, that's, that's clear from Scripture. We see, basically, when we get to the end of the book and those people are being thrown into the lake of fire, right? So not everybody's going up, some are going down. So universalism's out of the picture. So when Jesus appeased the wrath of God, he did it for some, but apparently not for all, because if he did it for all, there is no wrath. That's what hell is, the wrath of God displayed. The question, again, is what limits that? A synergistic view, synergism, putting together, blending, cooperating, okay, um, says that the atonement, that is the appeasement of God's wrath by the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ, okay, only becomes effective when you have faith and belief. You are the determiner of your fate, eternal fate. You are. I'll quote to you from a website. Uh, I'm not going to categorize this because I, I just don't want to do that, but a website that focuses on this synergistic view. First of all, no one is saved merely by the atonement of Christ. Jesus died on the cross and shed his blood his shed blood saves no one. The atonement by itself saves none. It is faith in Christ that saves. Only those who appropriate His atonement are redeemed and forgiven. So here's what basically it. The cross made atonement possible, not actual. That's your option. That's how you got to deal with some people go to heaven and some people don't. 
Some people experience the wrath of God. What is the determining factor? You, in this case. you got to cooperate, is a term used, with the Holy Spirit, with God, to make Christ's work accomplish anything. So when he said it was finished, it wasn't finished. It was just made possible. If Christ bore the sins of everyone, of all sins, of all times, of everyone, no one is going to hell. If so, God is unjust because their, their sin is being punished twice. Punishment came upon Christ for their sin, but you know what? You didn't believe it, so you're going to get punished for it too. But God is not unjust. Well, what about the sin of unbelief? Well, if he died for the sins of everyone, for everyone's sin, for all their sin, that would include the sin of unbelief. Unless he didn't die for all sins, just all the sins except for the sin of unbelief. You ever thought about it this deep before? Have you been to our church? You have. To those who say that's the case, that he died for everybody's sins and so on, Listen to Samuel, God giving a word. I swore to the house of Eli, the guilt of Eli's house will never be atoned for. Wait, wait a minute, if he atoned for everybody's sin, sin on a, that includes Eli's. Isaiah 22 and 14, the Lord Almighty has revealed this in my hearing. Till your dying day, speaking of these particular people in Jerusalem, this sin will not be atoned for. Now, I could take the time today, but I'm not going to. There are various, quote, proof texts for universal atonement. If you want to talk about those, I, I will send you uh, some papers I have written addressing each and every one of those. I can send you some by other people that can address those. Because we cannot allow Scripture to contradict itself. If it is contradicting itself, we have a misunderstanding of what's being said. So when Jesus says in Matthew, For this is the blood, or this is my blood in the covenant, which I poured out for many. For the forgiveness of sins. Well, no, no, that should say everybody, not many. I can't do that. Isaiah 53 and 12. Therefore, I will allot to him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong, because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he himself bore the sins of many and interceded for their transgressions. Hebrews 9 and 28, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin for those who eagerly await him. So many qualifies the word all. Now we have done this so many times in this church. All very seldom means all. All 
typically means all of a particular category. So all the young adults today will be here for pizza after church. All young adults in the world? Every young adult? No, we mean the ones here. The word world, the word cosmos, um, John uses the most. Again, I'll give you a paper I wrote on that. John uses it more than anybody else. Very few times I think of it as his 95 uses in both his uh, uh, gospel and epistles could ever be interpreted to mean every human being that ever lived. We have to read that in the context when Jesus says, my sheep. Matter of fact, most of the time in those contexts where we see all or world, there's also our, us, we, and that qualifies who they are. All right? Most of the time, by the way, the world's used the way we use it, the non-believing world. That's the way it's used most. Okay? We have to, those alls and world have to be interpreted through the many. Second Timothy 1 and 9. For he has saved us and called us with a holy calling. Now, who's the us? You can speak up. It's all right. Who's us? The Christians, believers, right. Not according to our works. Not according to our faith, our, our belief. I can show you in Scripture where belief is granted, faith is given from him. But according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted to us in Christ from all eternity. God appoints people to believe, Acts 13 and 48. God chooses who is holy and blameless, Ephesians 1, 4. God calls according to his purpose. I just read that in 2 Timothy 1, 9. God chooses us for salvation, 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 14. God grants the act of believing, Philippians 1, 29. God grants repentance, 2 Timothy 2, 24 through 26. God causes us to be born again, not our faith. God causes us to be faith, or born again, 1 Peter 1 and 3. God draws people to himself, John 6, 44 and 65. God predestines us for salvation, Romans 8, 29 through 30, and adoptions, Ephesians 1, 5, and according to his purpose, Ephesians 1, 11. I know, it's too much for you to write. God makes us born again, not by our will, but by his will. John 1, 12 through 13. God works the faith in the believer. John 6, 28 through 29, Philippians 2, 12 through 13. As Martin Luther said in his book, The Bondage of the Will, which I really recommend you read. Timothy read it recently. Uh, Martin Luther is a very witty fellow, as he wrote. If grace depends on our cooperation, then it is no longer grace. If it depends on me at all, it's not grace. Grace is it's given without you doing a thing. Well, wait a minute. Don't I have to believe? Don't I have to? Yes. But God does that. 
you don't believe, you don't have faith, you can sit in a million church services, in a million evangelistic crusades, two people side by side. One of them comes to believe and put their faith in the Christ and the other one. They both had the same message. Is this guy smarter than that guy or that gal? One of them is smarter than the other one? One can get it and the other one can't get it? One's smart enough to choose, the other is not smart enough to choose. They, they're not smart enough to choose God over hell. No, God draws. No one comes to the Father but through me. And it's the Spirit and the Father that does the drawing. There is no other gate. There's only one gatekeeper. That's how it's done. We don't like the idea that he died for his sheep. We want to believe he died for the goats, the wolves, the pigs. Oh, pick your animal. But Jesus tells us specifically that he died for his sheep. I want you to comprehend that for a minute. Before there was time. There is no time space. Nothing exists but the self-existent one himself and three persons. Before he decided to say, let there be light, he already did this. I will die for you. Not that one. Now, wait a minute. You think that seems unfair. I hate to tell you, none of you deserve to be died for. None of you deserve Jesus Christ. We're all, the moment he creates, Adam stumbles. Every one of us is sentenced to death. And he reaches by his own choice and pardons out of it. He doesn't go, hey, here's what I got to do. Um, you know what? I've decided you're going to hell. No, no, no. You're all going there. It's by grace that he brings the pardon. Before time began, he chose you. Ponder that for a minute. Why me? I don't know. There is nothing in me worthy to be chosen. There is not one good thing in me without him. It is Christ and his work in me. It gives me any value. I'm not lovable without him. It is he in me that makes me lovable to God. Let, just lay in bed tonight and I want you to ponder that. There is nothing. And God says, I'm going to create and I'm going to pick you. Why me? To the glory of his grace. To the exaltation of the Father and the edification and the glorification of the Son. That's why. It ain't about you. It's about Him. They think a man is crazy when he says that. You guys don't get it. <laughs> it's about me and the Father, and it's our plan, not yours. You're insane. I know. It, it, it is almost insane to comprehend why God in eternity past Whatever, call this sheep by name. It's personal. We, we, we ponder the idea that he knows the stars by name, but he calls me by name. Before the beginning, how does, I don't know. I can't comprehend the world without, existence without time. I, I can't do it. But I sure can't do this. 
I can raise my hands and give glory to his name. I can bow before him because I recognize this. I am unworthy. It is his sovereign grace that called me out of that darkness into the marvelous light. It is his sovereign choice to love me, not because I'm lovable. All I have left to do is worship him. That's all I've got. I can't give you a list of five reasons why. Because I had enough faith and that guy didn't. I believed and that guy wouldn't. No, no, there's no I in the message. It's him, 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 him. That leaves me on my face before the throne of God saying, God, how, how, I don't understand how, but I know you're worthy of my praise. I don't understand what you did, why you did it, but I will bow before you and I will praise your name for eternity because you told, oh, come on, people, somebody preach. Before time, I cannot grasp that kind of love. I can't. I love my wife beyond anything else on the planet, but there was a day I came to love her. I didn't know her before I met her. But he loved me before I met him. While I was yet a sinner. When I ignored his existence, denied his word, ran from and rebelled against his truth, Christ died for me. Me. Ponder it for a minute. Put your mind around it. You can't. Put your spirit around it for a minute. Should have did this one before worship. The next time you come into church and they're playing a song you don't like, remember this, it ain't about you. It's about one who did it all. By his sovereign choice, by his great grace. The only reason you could sit here today and open your mouth in true worship and spirit is because he chose to redeem you bring life to a dead man and woman that we would spend eternity in his presence. You always wonder, what would I do in heaven forever? Well, I hope you just got an idea. Every person, man, woman, and child, will kneel before his name. The sinner will not go, hey, hey, this ain't fair. They're going to bow before a holy, righteous, perfect God and go, yep, I deserve everything that I'm going to get. The believer, on the other hand, will bow before that perfect, holy, and righteous God and go, I don't deserve any of this. I did nothing to be here. All I can do is claim this, Jesus Christ, my Savior and Lord. That's all I got. Is Jesus. It's his cross. It's his blood. As he looks down through the law, all of it I've broken. The only thing I can claim is the blood of the lamb. That's what I call on. I can get excited about gospel, folks. All right? When we make the Bible the gospel about us, we've made a new gospel. The gospel is about God, his sovereign grace, And Jesus Christ, who voluntarily took on my sin, this sheep's sin, and took my black wool and made it as white as snow. Because I'm a good sheep? Nope. Simply because he chose me to be his sheep. And he called me out of the pen by name. Let's stand.
I know I have family <coughs> and friends that watch our live feed. You know what they're saying right now? That's right, preacher. It sure wasn't you. Because they knew me before. And they've known me since with all my weakness. They're amen and on the other side of the camera there. See, some of you, you only know me as the suit and tie preacher guy. Okay? Not as the inmate. Father, I give you thanks for your sovereign grace. I thank you, O oh God, that it doesn't depend on me because if it did, I, I'd be in a world of hurt. I thank you, God, that it's all through the blood of the Lamb. Every bit of my sin, past, present, and future, was taken by Him. And I am declared righteous by you through Him. That He gave me faith and belief. God, I could spend eternity thanking you. And it would not be enough. But we can give you all the praise and all the glory belongs to you. And we acknowledge it this day. In Christ's name, amen. This is Stephen Wilson, and we want to thank you for joining us today, and we hope you were blessed by today's message. Truths from God's Unchanging Word is an outreach ministry of Kindred Bible Church in Caldwell, Idaho. If you would like to listen to other messages by Pastor Randy or learn more about Kindred Bible Church, visit kindredbible.org. Our prayer for you is that you grow closer to Christ as we study the truths from God's unchanging word.